Hey, Jeff, could you do a, a magic job of making me sound more intelligent when you edit this, please? <laughs> How could you possibly get more intelligent, George? The ceiling's been hit. <laughs> Come on, the guy's only human. I meant that as a compliment. It so sounded like an insult. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm throwing away my tinfoil hat. and Jeff Heller. If you've been looking for friendly, knowledgeable banter about classic comic books, by golly, you found it. CCF In Depth is produced in partnership with the Classic Comics Forum, the number one place on the web for friendly, respectful, and knowledgeable discussion about classic comics. If you've been looking for a group online that's a little bit closer, a little bit more family-like, a little bit more personal than those impersonal Facebook groups, check us out at classiccomics.org. And as a reminder, hosting podcasts doesn't come free for us. So if you like the podcast a lot and would love to help us out, you can always come and visit us at patreon.com slash the classic comics forum, where we have all sorts of exciting thank yous for anybody who's looking to become a member, including access to the hidden, mythical, exciting yeah, we added some new sound bites this time around. I, I might have gotten a little out of hand with it. You'll have to let me know in your comments afterwards what you think. But yeah, we've got all sorts of exciting thank yous for you there, including the ability to see the notes that we use during each episode. You can hear the original extended recording of the CCF podcast theme song. Uh, sometimes I post some of my Photoshop experiments with George and I, the ones that don't make it into the promotions you might have seen on social media and Patreon. And um, right now, actually... I am reviewing Crisis on Infinite Earths number 1 through 12 in real time, which means if you have access to the hidden Fortress of Solitude, you can actually see me writing in real time as I read these issues and leave me comments that I will respond to. I actually learned quite a few things by talking to some of our Patreons already as I reviewed, so please come check us out at patreon.com slash classic comics forum right now i'd like to introduce our esteemed guest for today's episode kurt mitchell is a comic book historian who is the author of the american comic book chronicles from 1940 through 1944 he's the co-author of american comic book chronicles 1945 through 1949 we know him as the resident scholar at the classic comics forum and he's also a resident detractor of crisis on infinite earths so kurt welcome to the show thank you good to be here all right, so let, let's start with the basics. Christ and Infinite Earths, um, I assume anybody listening to this podcast doesn't need to be told what that is, but um, let's reflect on, this happened four decades ago. We're still talking about it. So, George, start us off with why you think crisis matters so much even four decades later. Well, I'll tell you why. It was the very first reboot of an entire line that actually addressed all the different changes, all the different continuities. And it attempted to actually streamline everything because the thought was that DC was convoluted and no one understood it. That was wrong. It was just that the sorry sucked. But, 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 th but that's what they thought. Their theory was that. So it's important for that reason. And 
it saved DC because DC was ready to go. Like that ties into my tinfoil hat theory. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna have to throw it now. This segment brought to you by George's tinfoil hat theory. That's right. Tinfoil hat theories. <laughs> but anyway, in 1980, Marv Wolfen came on the scene at DC. Him and George Perez uh, started doing uh, T- New Teen Titans, and arguably, it saved DC. And it, and it and it went on to be the top seller, rivaling X Men and some other top Spider-Man, whatever was the top-selling book in Marvel. Now, after that, he had the juice, Marv Wolfman had the juice to actually propose fixing fixing the continuity of something that's 50 years old. Now, my tinfoil hat theory is that Marv Wolfman was making a play to become the editor-in-chief of DC. That's how much juice he had. He was a top writer, arguably, of the line. People that were reading Cross the Infinite Earths they weren't even reading DC comic books. So they started with that. It was their jumping on point. And after that, I mean, Jeff even says in some of his posts that he didn't even, you know, he, he likes Superman a lot better after the crisis than before. And that these are the best stories. And that's why they cleaned up everything. They started everything new. And yet, Wolfman was the writer on Superman for those three years prior to crisis. And he didn't affect the book sales at all. Except he was limited with the world that they gave him, with, with, with that, that has super monkey, super horse. They weren't using People. most of those characters for years and years. The only character, uh, the only one of those characters that anybody was using was Crypto, and he was tucked away in the Superman family book, which was already canceled by the time Wolfman came but aboard. But the point is, it, it had no cachet. A lot of the fans thought it was old hat and stupid. So you're fighting that, fighting the whole idea of, of, of the mythos that, Instead of one guy, one one character, one person leaving Krypton, there's like a dozen so people that made it out of Krypton, including Supergirl and everyone else. That part well, more of, than a dozen. There was a whole city. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, the whole uh, hook to Superman is that he was the guy. He was the person that survived. And as as the years went on, more and more people were, were uh, you know discovered to, to survive the blow up. I actually can't argue with you there, but what I would argue is that the approach didn't have to be the approach they took. When Julia Schwartz took over the Superman books in the early 70s, he and Denny O'Neill basically rebooted Superman simply by agreeing to not reintroduce those elements into the stories. They depowered him and they chose to ignore, I mean, they, they stopped using the Superman robots. They never mentioned the Bizarros. They did what needed to be done just simply by ignoring things rather than trying to find a way to write them out. And I, I personally prefer that way to... I, I actually did like that that, that uh, era. But let me finish my tin, and Let me finish before my tinfoil hat flies away off my head. Tinfoil hat theories. There was the, the problem... The three problem was there's three people in front of them. Jeanette Kahn was in charge, so was Paul Levitz, and so was Dick Giordano. And they were they had their hands in this reboot as well, but I think that there was a point there where he said to himself, "Well, I could take this whole thing on, you know." But it didn't happen. I just think, and you know, he was he was so influential and such a big big deal that he he might have been the next editor in chief or whatever they called it in D.C. the equivalent that, that they call call it. But again, you know, you make good points about that he was writing Superman, but he was saddled with the old continuity and the old way of thinking, which DC had, they, DC had to be marvelized to get better. 
Actually, I, I like I like your theory too, and I think it works. And I'm going to introduce my own crazy tinfoil hat theory later on as well. <laughs> I think what's interesting also with your point was so Marv Wolfman in 1981 when he first pitches this is at the top of his game and arguably one of the most powerful writers in all of comics, certainly at DC. By the time this gets made in 1985. His star was already on a decline. It was just beginning to, where Perez had walked off of, um, walked off is probably the wrong phrase, but left the Teen Titans, and sort of Wolfman was beginning to dry up a little bit and might have thought that he was more equipped to take on a 12-part year-long storyline than he was. And I think it might have very well been his poor writing of this story that prevented him from getting the power he was whoa, seeking. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Poor writing! <laughs> before, before you go on with your objections, George, I'd like to interject something here. And that is that one of the problems with Crisis is that Wolfman acted as his own editor. Woo! You know, some, somebody somebody owes Jim Shooter an apology. Yes, they do, because Jim Shooter... <laughs> here's something that I would have said if I'd been in part of last week's discussion. Jim Shooter was absolutely right in eliminating the writer-editor position at Marvel. Mm -hmm. It is never a good idea for a writer to be his own editor. And yeah. comics, is the, comics is the only field in which that's allowed. Um, according to Wolfman's write-ups in Crisis, he was working under an editor, I think uh, Bob Greenberger. But was that not the case throughout the entire storyline? Greenberger was working as a copy editor on the title, but he wasn't he wasn't oh. there's a big difference yeah the impression i got was that the, the people i mentioned before levitz and giordano were acting as a committee for what was going to happen a matter of fact uh, um marv wolfman says in an interview that i that I, I read or listened to that they gave him a list of people that he could kill and some people he couldn't so he wasn't just free to do whatever he wanted the broad strokes of course were his idea but Remember, the way I see Crisis, it didn't have to be the greatest story in the world. What it was, it was a mechanism to get you from the old universe where, you know, Wildcat's teaming up with Batman, even though he he lives in World Earth 2, to get to a new place where they say, okay, we're starting everything. So, and that's, exactly what's, that's exactly what's wrong with the story, is it is mechanistic. You can see the wheels turning at every point. The plot is not organic. It doesn't make sense. It feels completely arbitrary. And it is but, simply not good. I don't know. I think you're being a little bit too harsh, but I, I just reread it. Believe me, I'm being I'm being <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> hey, look, I reread it too. And I have my reservations about some of the plots and, 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 and the extended fight scenes. But remember, they're trying to showcase, they're trying to end an era. So they they're trying to give you a love letter to the to all the characters that existed in the past that's why everybody in the kitchen sink is in there i, I but i didn't see i didn't see sugar let's spike. take a, that would have been cool um sugar and spike do appear in one panel seriously yeah in a background they're they're in frame photos on bernie the brain's wall is well they don't i'll, I'll be, they don't actually appear a picture well, hold on, of hold on. Is, is casey the cop there did not see him <sighs> i didn't see him but, but, but Fireman but, Farrell is from showcase well, number one. This is where Kurt is extending his superpower of his story. His story is superpower. I have to say, I... Because I never heard of a, 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 a cop, Michael I like Crisis better now, just knowing Sugar and Spike appear in a panel. That, like, goes a long way for me. 
it's a picture. It's not. It would have been nice if they're actually walking in a background and get hit by they, one of those was, demons. Angel and <laughs> the maybe not. do appear in issue twelve. What about Binky? Is Binky that, that would have been Binky. cool? All right, let's take a step back only because we've jumped right into the crux of the middle of this whole darn thing and just do a little context leading up to it. So, George, is it safe to say that the reason that Crisis Matters to you is it fixed an ailing DC Comics and saved it from the brink? That's a, that's another part of my tinfoil hat theory. I'm just going to finish it by saying this. Them, this, this Crisis of, <laughs> this crisis of Info, uh, Infinite Earth series was the last shot for DC. I believe that if they didn't turn the sales around, they were going to sell themselves to Marvel. That had been discussed for sure. They were going out of business. They they weren't selling anything. The only book that was selling was New Teen Titans. And as you mentioned, George Burroughs just left. So who knows where that was going to go. So I, I feel they might have been the out. justification mm-hmm. behind Jerry Conway's retooling of the Justice League as well. Because the yeah. sales on the book had tanked. They were ready to go. The whole series, the whole line, just kind of like today. People keep talking today about DC selling or, 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 le- or leasing their characters to Dark Horse or, or somebody else because they're doing so poorly. And sales. I can't argue that point with you. I think there was a business justification for the reboot. Kurt, you should never argue with me because I know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, a humble, too. I need I'm going to let that go. That was amazing. <laughs> When we're talking retooling of the Justice League, do we mean the Detroit League or something else that I missed? No, the Detroit League. That was supposed to boost sales. Yes. <laughs> they were hoping they were hoping it would have the same effect that the reboot of the X-Men and the Teen Titans had. Oh, lordy. Gypsy was going to save uh, DC, huh? Oh, yeah. Gypsy and Vibe. <laughs> All right. So does, does that conclude your tinfoil hat theory, George? I think so. Again, Marvel, DC was going to go out. Marv Wolf was making his play. Him and Perez revived the line, the DC comic book, and, you know, they did well afterwards. I, I actually, again, I stopped reading DC as well. So, you know, they brought me back. I actually, home. I read DC for about a year and a half after Crisis. I gave a lot of their books a shot. And a lot of them were good. There's no question about it. A lot of them were better than they had been before the crisis. Uh, the only reason I didn't keep up with a lot of them is because I dropped out of comics completely at that point. All right, so why crisis matters to me. Um, Beyond the obvious idea that it's been repeated a million times since, um, I think it actually had a surprisingly detrimental effect on the comic industry. If you look at why comics were failing um, in the 70s and into the 80s, there are a lot of reasons you can explain. Um, But one of them, I think, is that superheroes were going quite stale. They'd been around for a long time, and Marvel gave them a new shot in the arm and made them exciting and interesting again. But over at Marvel before Shooter... You had all sorts of innovation to new, different genres. People were trying sword and sorcery more. People were trying martial arts more. There were, you know, horror elements were coming back in a huge way. Um, DC, I think, at the same time, was starting to make plans to move into these directions. And then Crisis was Wolfman's way of making superheroes exciting again in an incredibly lazy way, where it's not that they became better. It's just... All new, all different, like you might rebrand a product that you change two ingredients in. And while I'll agree that the post-crisis DC is an amazing era, I, I think it's my favorite era at DC. A lot of great quality came out of it. The concept itself is an inherently lazy one. It's, I don't think Wolfman had a brilliant idea for how all these properties were going to become better. It was just, hey, 
We're starting again from scratch. Yay! He did have an idea. He did. What have was an his idea. idea? He had an idea to start all the books from zero. Right. That, from one. And, he D- didn't, and DC though. didn't do it. He didn't. I'm saying DC had to go buy into yes, that. Marv himself DC didn't even buy into his own premise because he didn't want to reboot Teen Titans. Before we get into all that, what I, to clarify what I meant was Wolfman didn't have specific ideas for new directions for the characters. He said, let's reset everything and just sort of left it there. And that's not a brilliant idea. And his way for how he was going to reset everything was not a brilliant idea. And yet it got all this attention because, I, once again, if you want to sell a bag of chips ahoy and people aren't buying anymore, you put a label on it that says, all new, all difference. And people buy it again for a little while. And that's really what Crisis was, in my opinion. And it's not just Wolfman who didn't have the plan. The entire editorial board didn't have a plan. It should have been a unified approach. Right. Kurt, how about you? Why do you think Crisis matters four decades later? I think Crisis matters because it was a turning point in comics in the sense that it was the edit, the, the companies finally coming to terms with the fact that they were not the ubiquitous part of American childhood that they had been. They were no longer selling to children. They were selling to a hardcore fan base and Crisis was aimed squarely at that hardcore fan base. And all of, all of the things that followed from it, the yearly events, the impenetrable continuity, the uh, constant reboots, all had to do with appealing to hanging on to that core fan base, which all of their sales were dependent on, rather than trying to find new approaches to the product, new formats, new outlets. They gave up on being a widely purchased medium. I'll accept that. I, I, I think, you know, I, I agree and I don't agree. And this is coming from the perspective of having been um, five years old when crisis happened. Um, I tried to read my first comic books when I was about five, right before crisis. I picked up a Batman comic and a Green Lantern comic, and I was so excited to read them because, you know, I had the action figures. I watched the Super Friends cartoons and they were completely inaccessible. They were written to that niche older audience and not kid friendly at all. Meanwhile, when I tried to come back to comics a few years after that, whether this was brilliantly done on purpose or completely accidentally, I didn't even know what Crisis was until decades later because they managed to make it feel to the lay reader that nothing had changed. If you were a diehard fan, you knew the differences. But I walked in, I was reading Superman, I was reading Batman, and I had no idea this was a reboot. Fair enough. Well, you know, I mean, generally, the concepts are going to stay the same. Superman's still going to be the person from Krypton. He still has Lois Lane. He still has he still has Jimmy Olsen and, and the Daily Planet. So in that way, it's not going to change. But what's changed is that they the stories are more they they're more directed. You could connect with the characters more, and and, and they did it. I guess my that. point being that because DC was so poorly managed, um, there were some comics that were much more mature before the crisis than they were afterwards. And in my case, I was able to access and understand the post-crisis stories better than the pre. But that was just the stories I was reading specifically. Was it really that they were mature or just that they were more complex? Which, the pre or the post? Pre. Well, I mean, I know that if I jumped into DC in those few years before uh, the crisis, with a lot of the series, I would have given up because 
I wouldn't have been able to follow what was going on. The, the Batman books were running, the same story was running through both Batman titles. You had to buy both to follow what was oh, going sure. on. Um, it, it just happened by chance. The first Batman issue I read, though, was a standalone story that um, was using uh, a tree being cut down as a metaphor for urban renewal. And that was what the whole issue was about. And I'm a five-year-old going, where's Joker? <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Right? I didn't get it. <laughs> And Green Lantern was it, was, it was a little bit of both in that case, because yes, Jon Stewart was Green Lantern and I didn't know who he was, um, but I also didn't understand the nuances of the story and the, the deep interpersonal probing of the character and all that stuff. Well, you might not like this, but DC had to become Marvel. In the 70s, DC looked at Marvel and they saw that they were catching up to them in sales. And they decided that what Marvel was doing was lots of interaction between titles and lots of endless stories that went on forever and ever, continuing and continuing and continuing. What I thought made DC unique from Marvel was that they were the masters of the done-in-one, that the books were allowed to have their own feel instead of having to, you know, with Marvels, some of the books did have their own feels, but then there was also the generic Marvel comic. And I think you know what I mean. Yes. Uh, you could. It didn't matter if you were reading the Defenders or the Avengers or the Fantastic Four or Spider-Man or Iron Man. It read like a Marvel comic. And DC, because of the way it had originally been structured, with each editorial office being basically its own little company, its own little line, you had books that, that did read differently from editor to editor. A Superman book did not read like Batman. It didn't read like The Flash. It didn't read like uh, Robert Kaniger's War Books. There was. Well, that's, why they were, that's why they were going out of business. Is it though? They were. They were all different universes, and and I don't want to all different universe. I want if there's a problem with Superman, that he could call up Green Lanterns. Hey, come over and give me a hand with it. I'm not every issue, but the magic of, of Marvel is that all the heroes knew each other, and and whatever adventures the Avengers went through, they shared their files with the Fantastic Four. It wasn't like they were totally different cities, and whatever happened didn't affect the other city. And, Bob, and DC had to do some of that because the, the fans didn't care. There was nothing at stake. Everybody had their own separate universe, and that doesn't work. It only doesn't work if you insist on a shared universe, and I don't think a shared universe is necessary. The problem is, is that DC was trying to appeal well, to fans. Here's my question for you, Kurt. This is an honest question. This is, not a, um, this is not sarcastic because you know the earlier days of DC better than I do. My understanding of DC, you know, as history is they capitalized upon you know, a very, very successful license in the very beginning. Superman was something nobody was doing before, and they cashed out in it big. They got it on radio. They got it on milk cartons and bread, and, you know, they, they licensed it well and sued anybody who impersonated. And then over the years, you know, the Adventures of Superman TV show took off, and it always seemed to me that DC was a master of selling a property, but I'm not aware of an era where DC did really fantastic storytelling, done in one or otherwise, prior to Crisis. What am I missing? Well, I, I think you're also right there. But there was also the fact that, you know, as far as the editorial board was concerned, the average comic reader was eight. And the readership turned over every five years. So there was no motive to make the stories more mature or more intelligent. I think by the time they got into the 70s and 80s, they started to realize that you could write an intelligent done-in-one. And certain writers started to go that way. But there were still those people, you know, people like Julius Schwartz, who was a very stubborn man and never gave up on the idea 
that the readership turned over constantly and it didn't matter if you repeated the same plot line over and over again. Well, this is why they were going down like the Titanic because they had old guys running everything. They refused to look at a new idea. You're absolutely and, and right Mar about that. And, and Marvel came along and blew their doors off. And that's why when crisis comes along, they're about ready to go out. It took 15 years for Marvel to blow their doors off. Marvel didn't surpass DC in sales until 1972. And it took uh, move, changing all their books to the 25 cent format, which DC also did. And then Marvel went back to the 20 cent format. And suddenly their line were cheaper to buy than DC's because DC had committed to that size for through their printers for the next, what, year, year and a half? And during that period, Marvel suddenly was outselling DC because their books were cheaper. The stories are better. Come on, man. Say it. I'm, I want you to say it. All right. So let, let's let's do a little background here. Marv Wolfman believed or claims that he believed that there was a problem he needed to fix um, with the history of DC's convoluted multiverse. And Kurt, you are the most qualified person in the room to speak on that. So would you be comfortable giving a brief history on DC's multiverse? Uh, DC's multiverse did not grow organically. It grew syncretically as they acquired properties from other companies. Beginning in 1946, when DC bought out All-American Comics, which was a sister company that shared their distribution and production costs, but had its own editorial offices. Uh, they, that was the company that owned The Flash and Green Lantern and Wonder Woman, which DC did not own until then. So that was the first of their acquisitions. In the late 50s, when quality comics went out of business, they acquired the rights to their characters and titles, most of which they chose not to use, but they went immediately with three of their books. They took over without missing an issue, Black Hawk, GI Combat, and one of the romance comics, which I can't remember. Then in 66, they added Plastic Man, adding him to the Earth One universe, what, what, what had come to be called the Earth One universe. Well, of course, you know that, that uh, in the late 50s, Sales on superhero comics tanked, and most of their superhero titles were canceled. They were down to just Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and a handful of, of backup series in the, their titles. Then they rebooted the, the superhero universe uh, with Julia Schwartz's new versions of The Flash, Green Lantern, Adam, and Hawkman in the late 50s and early 60s, and that was the rise of Earth One. Then in 62, or 61, excuse me, they decided to reintroduce the Golden Age characters in a separate universe as Earth-2. And that was the true beginning of the multiverse. Then you had Earth-S, which was the Captain Marvel-related characters. They didn't have the rights to the others. Then they acquired, they finally started using the Quality Comics characters, which lived on Earth-X. And then finally, just before Crisis, they acquired the rights to the Charlton Comics superheroes, who lived on Earth-4. And all of these characters came and went. There were editors who simply ignored the multiverse setup or insisted on moving the characters to Earth-1. So the Freedom Fighters, who are all quality comics characters, were moved from Earth-X to Earth-1 so they could interact with the other characters. There were characters from the Golden Age who were introduced as Earth-1 characters rather than as Earth-2 characters. Characters like Sargon the Sorcerer, Zatara, and uh, the Vigilante, the Guardian characters like that were reintroduced as Earth-1 characters rather than Earth-2 characters. This was what led up to the crisis, was there was so much confusion. And as George mentioned earlier, you had Batman teaming up with Wildcat in The Brave and the Bold. Wildcat wasn't Earth-2 character, but was being treated as if he were an Earth-1 character. 
because the editor of Brave and Bold simply didn't give a damn about Earth 1 and Earth 2. He just wanted to tell good stories. The issue of Batman Family, or maybe it was two of them, when um, Huntress was briefly a, a feature there, where she was just walking back and forth between Earth 1 and Earth 2 with no explanation. It was amazing. Yes, you're absolutely right. And like that was the kind of confusion that was running rampant. And I've always maintained that the problem wasn't with the, with the multiverse setup. It was with editorial not having the guts to say, look, these are the rules as far as this goes. And you follow these rules from this point onward and nobody will be confused. Because I've never heard anybody who followed DC's books in those days say that they were confused by the difference between Earth 1 and Earth 2. Paging Jim Shooter! Paging Jim Shooter! <laughs> you needed somebody with a strong hand to say, no, you can't do this. You well, did. That's exactly what they needed. Because the editors themselves were, were so powerful and weren't to be questioned. Nobody could rein them in. That was one of the things Jeanette Kahn was trying to create when she came in. She was starting to demand a level of professionalism that DC had not ever exhibited because she came from the world of publishing outside comic books and started to apply the standards for other areas of publishing to the comic book line. And part of that was she started demanding a better quality of writing and art. And now that didn't happen across the board, but it did start to happen. And you could see it happening. It just was taking too long and it wasn't appealing. As, as George rightly says, most of it was not appealing to the people who were at that point buying comics. Jeanette Kahn came in at the right time, but she didn't have experience with comic books. And like you said, it, it was a fight. But sometimes, again... And sometimes no is a good thing. Sometimes no is a good thing. And part of the point of, for, of putting Dick Giordano in charge was that, that she was hoping that Dick would be the guy who would be able to say no. But that's not the kind of guy Dick Giordano was. He was a friendly, amiable man who wanted to get along with everyone. Um, he was basically temperamentally the exact opposite of Jim Shooter. And yeah. it, worked, it worked against DC. All right, so that takes us to um, 1981 where um, Marv Wolfman is looking at all this and, and has an idea that he can fix it all. And George, I, I think that you are a, a huge uh, fan of Wolfman's vision. So did you want to elaborate all upon how he went about that in the story there? Well, I tell you, Jim, uh, um, um, Marv Wolfman is one of my favorite writers. He, he's delivered in every, every place he went, he delivered with original ideas. And for what I, but what I understand, he didn't get the idea. He said that in some of the interviews I read, he, he said he had a lot of fans coming up to him and saying, well, why, why don't you try to write a story fixing the continuity? And why don't you try to, you know, try to kind of get more towards where Marvel is, where everybody's on the same page? And he said eventually, you know, he talked to the bigwigs in D.C. And that's when they, they were going to do something called, I think, History of D.C. or something. It wasn't Crisis yet. Yeah, it was, it was some kind of the, it was the history of the D.C. universe. Yeah, it was something like that. So the actual merging of all the Earths didn't take, it wasn't, that wasn't the idea initially. And I, I mean, he'd been working on it from 1981 all the way to 1985. And, and it's interesting fact, they didn't have an artist yet. The, George Perez was never part of this at all. They were, they were still wondering who was going to be the artist. And Marv Wolfman claims that he kept talking because he's close friends with George Perez. He said they would meet every week and he would say, oh, this is what I'm doing next and this is the next idea. And I think uh, after a while, um, George Perez said, well, I got to do this book because you're going to have every character that ever existed and I need to draw that. And, and Marv Wolfman claims he's, he was so happy that that happened because 
that's kind of what he wanted. He, he wanted George Perez to be part of it. So I, I personally believe that Wolfman needed Perez the way Claremont needed Byrne. Oh boy, that's yeah. a whole other debate. They, <laughs> well, you know, I, they weren't. I'll agree with the intent of Kurt's statement, if not the exact examples of it. That I think Wolfman. The entire time I was reading Crisis, because you know we all reread it for this podcast, I kept thinking how differently it would feel if Perez had been co-plotting, and I know scenes that would have been in there that it weren't, and I think that's exactly what's missing in Crisis. Is like, for example, um, issue number eight, the big moment for Flash, comes out of absolutely nowhere. And it should have been the most powerful high point of the entire series. You know, we should have seen pages upon pages of Flash being tortured mentally and physically and fighting through it heroically to not let Psycho Pirate own him in his moment of need. We should have seen why that antimatter cannon mattered so very much and built up to the moment where Barry was ready to let it all go and sacrifice everything. And instead it just sort of comes out of nowhere. And I feel like the entire series is a lot like that. It's, it's a bunch of moments plotted on a on some plot diagram we don't see on a wall, thrown together with no real flow or organicness to it. And I'm not sure that chart actually existed when they started doing the series. But let me to address the actual of the plotting of, of uh the actual series, this this is what I saw as a pattern. The anti monitor was always ahead of them. He was always had the advantage and all they kept trying to do was stop him and, and delay him and delay him. You know, he at every point he was beating them up. He was beating all the heroes up easily. As a matter of fact, there's there's something I want to point out in issue one that tells you everything about the anti monitor and how powerful the power level he has. You know, DC's most powerful heroes are Superman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, and yet the anti monitor kills them all in like five panels in the first issue. He kills a crime syndicate. And they are the Superman, Green Lantern, Flash, Wonder Woman. He kills them all with no problem. At the point the story started, we hear that Anti-Monitor has already destroyed hundreds, possibly thousands of alternate universes and has grown stronger with each new one. Yeah. And now we're told that, that he has trouble taking out those last five. That's not logical. That Marv Wolfman's scientific illiteracy kills the book dead in its tracks. <laughs> because he has no conception of how big the universe is. Hmm. I mean, no clue. No clue. A lot of people, lot of people don't. He's got a wave of antimatter <laughs> that is, is moving slow enough that people can run away from it, yet we're told that it has wiped out the rest of the universe except for Earth. There are things I like about <laughs> Crisis, and I'll go there, but one of my two biggest problems with it is the concept of the multiverse is such a rich idea. And you open with that, and then multiverse, this is great, what do you got? Oh, you know, maybe, what, 10 Earths? There are yeah. 10 at, Earths at, at the most. And not only is it only about 10, but it's just Earth. You know, Earth is this? the center of every one of those universes. Right, so where are the other planets? You know, first of all, why does Earth even exist in all these multiverses? Why is it more or less almost exactly the same in each of these multiverses? And what's happening on Thanagar? Even in Earth yeah. One, in the Earth One universe, why why didn't the monitor, he's got an entire planet of Kryptonians, the survivors of Krypton, who are no longer trapped in their little tiny city and are full size. 
He's got Monel's home planet of Dockham that is full of superhumans. He's got New Mars that is populated with people all just as powerful as the Martian Manhunter. He's got worlds that weren't even mentioned that exist in continuity that have people just as powerful as the Kryptonians. Why isn't he organizing an entire massive army of those people instead of picking those 14 characters that the book opens with? Well, then let's, know, some of whom yeah. are absolutely Let's get useless. to the second part of my complaint of this whole thing, which is there, there are so many times that the monitor does something and then, you know, as if he has an explanation for it and then we never get it afterwards. He handpicked these characters and only these characters for a reason. You'll find out the reason, but no, you won't. And like, I mean, we have that one scene where uh, Harbinger and Alexander Luther have gathered everybody on board the monitor ship and they focus on the freaking penguin. They zoom in on the freaking penguin. And then a scene later, they only send 14 heroes to go fight. <laughs> what the heck was the point? <laughs> and for that matter, what, what the hell What the hell uses Batman in a cosmic battle? Right. You know, and he has to be there because he's one of their big money characters. That's the you point. Don't want to sell Batman Underworld, you know. Is that the wheels of the, the mechanisms of the plot, the the necessity of doing it a certain way because they need to plug certain characters is just obvious from beginning to end. I think Marv Wolfman like spent a weekend reading the Metamorphosis Odyssey and the Great Darkness Sagna and then just, you know, lazily regurgitated them. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, is that your tinfoil hat theory? No, I'll go way more tinfoil than that. But if you think about it, it really is mostly the Metamorphosis Odyssey. It follows really almost the same plot points, just far more clumsily. I can't comment on that because I've never read the Metamorphosis Odyssey. I, I read it, and and and, and it's loosely based. I mean, what are you saying? One universe leads into the next universe. I'm saying it. It opens with this all-knowing being who summons together this unlikely ensemble of people for a reason that will be revealed later on, and it's because a universe is going to die and a new one must be reborn. Well, there's that. That I think, if I remember correctly, there's some kind of a like a like an army that's going that, that's going yes. across the universe and killing everybody and he feels that the, the person in charge Akhenaten, I think his name is he, yes. he feels that it's better to just sacrifice everything sure. to stop the plague to stop that plague but that whole so idea it's not, that it's not, I, it's not that they're going to destroy the universe it's just oh, that they're going to be <laughs> no i'm saying that the people that are actually uh they they're taking over every planet they're still going to exist so it's not like is antimatter and everything's going to be destroyed. But they, the basic just, concept of that whole, I've summoned you here for a purpose bit, and it had to be you specific people at this exact time because I've foreseen the future and I know what must happen. That's, and then it, and then it doesn't happen. happen. Right. And you never find out why Obsidian had to be there. Because, I mean, they spend so much freaking time in him. Like, oh, he's got shadow powers. Yeah, maybe this will make sense. Nope. Forget well, it. What, it, it, it. What the it, hell it, is Solovar doing there? Right. Well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go back to what I said before. It's a mechanism to get you to a new universe. All the sure. other little Why not just start the new universe and screw the explanation for it? Well, because because you're going to because you want to know what happened. They, he's acknowledging everything that came before to say, OK, now it's getting funneled down to one thing. So, no, so you know, know they could have accomplished the same thing by publishing an editorial in every issue saying, hey, guess what? Next month, everything starts from number one. This is the 50th anniversary of DC, so they wanted to make something special other than just a note saying we're starting from number one. God oh, forbid we shouldn't have a comic that mentions Bernie the Brain and Darwin Jones and all of these other nothing characters who hadn't appeared in a comic in 40 years. 
I actually thought it was cool when Tiny the Tiger showed oh, up. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> but he'd at least have been, he at least was appearing regularly in the Shazam strip. Yeah. You didn't like you didn't like Uncle Marvel. <laughs> I'm talking about these obscure characters that popped up. Two easy ways this could have been done better, and one is Perez plotting. I think might have helped it, but number two, here's I think this would have made at least Kurt and I both happier. Why not make it magic instead of science? If you explain bringing all these heroes together in terms of magic, you can do whatever the frick you want to. But by Wolfman trying to make it scientific and painstakingly trying to explain it through science that makes no sense, it just points a giant spotlight on how nonsensical this entire plot is. Yep. His mistake was trying to make it credible through science. The one issue of Swamp Thing that Alan Moore did as a follow-up to Crisis, where he had all the magical characters teamed up. Such a good story. Yes. That was a better story in one issue than Crisis was in 12. Absolutely. I don't know how you say, okay, they use matter and antimatter. They didn't know what they were doing and they and, and it's not real and whatever. And you want to point to magic as being real. Well, no, it's, it's the opposite point. It's that by saying magic, it's obviously made up and silly. When you're trying to explain things scientifically, you're, you're looking to build some credibility. And then you have baby Luther fly through a cloud of antimatter. And that suddenly makes his body half matter and half antimatter so that he can travel anywhere he wants to and take people there. Well, I mean, again, the, the idea of any superheroes, they could do something fantastical and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't have to follow science. Yeah, but you've got two choices. You can either say, we're not going to try to explain it, just go with it. Or you can explain it in a way that sort of kind of mostly makes sense. Wolfman, but, magic and, but magic is, it doesn't make sense. We're not going to explain it. Right. But here's All Wolf, of it is. But here's Wolfman throwing all these scientific explanations that aren't grounded in any science and don't follow any kind of logic whatsoever. Well, again, I'm not a scientist, so you could be right. I'm not a scientist just, either. I no, still I'm know just saying, like, you sense. Know, you, you <laughs> object, I'm scientifically you literate and Wolfman is not. Well, you, you, you object to, to the science and again... Everything's based in fantastical elements that have nothing to do with science. It's like when they tried to reboot, when they rebooted Superman and they tried to scientifically explain his powers. It kind of worked until you really thought about it. But the point being, when Andy Helfer tried to make it scientific, it sort of kind of 75% made sense. So until you really stop to think about it, you could accept that as scientific. Sure, he's got living solar batteries. Until you really stop and realize the fact that if he has that personal aura that nothing can possibly get through, how does he eat? You know, it's it's it made or more see sense. Or hear. Right. It made more sense than it didn't. Whereas Wolfman stuff just blatantly is just throwing around words like matter and antimatter without understanding any of it. It's not that he used antimatter as a plot device that I object to. It's that he didn't use it logically. Well, again, there's fantastical elements. I don't know how Superman picks up a building and it doesn't crumble under its own weight. The point just being Wolfman could have shortened Crisis a whole lot if he just said, you know what? It's magic. Don't question it. It would have read so much smoother. <laughs> it wouldn't have pissed me off. Well, I can't argue with you. You know, Thanks. If it's I not scientific, you want a lot. If it's not scientific, it's not scientific. I just didn't let it get in my way of enjoying the story. That's fair. But my only gripe is that they have an equivalent of 15 comic books to fill with all the double-sized issues. And it am amounted to being fight at scene after fight scene. A lot of fighting, a lot of big crowded scenes. So much of that felt padded. Yes. The entire, yeah. the entire issue with the villains felt like a total waste of time. 
I, I mean, I was just doing my reread up through today, and um, what struck me was I don't think I needed the first six. Issue seven and eight were relatively well-told stories. I even teared up when Supergirl died. That is, that is hands down the best scene Marv Wolfman ever wrote. My God, yes. But we didn't need the first six issues at all. It could have been done in a half-issue explanation. And she's not even in the first six issues, except, right. for, that one, except for that one scene with Batgirl. Exactly, which, don't get me wrong. was from her book. I liked, I liked the first six. Really? You know what? I found the only part that I found to be a slog was, again, fight a scene after fight scene with a million people in a panel. That kind of got to me after a while. But you're, you're building anticipation to confronting somebody that nobody could beat. And I never did understand the thing with the five huge towers in the different time periods. Um, I can explain why it. Why those time periods? And there's another thing. See, you've got the antimatter appearing in five different times. Well, if it's wiping out the world in one earlier time, then the other times no longer exist. That was a weakness. But I wasn't okay with But the actual it, towers appearing if the, was, if the was If the antimatter was started at the beginning of time, shortly after the Big Bang, the universe was so small it should have destroyed it in a matter of seconds, and none of the universes would have existed. Uh, can I address two things that you just, you guys are going 100 miles an hour here. I'm going to address sure. two things. One, Go ahead, George. Jeff, Jeff, you said you were five years old when this came came out. Yeah. So that means you didn't read it. You read it many years later after you you got uh, to the post-crisis. But, you know, Kurt and I probably read it as it came out. And we knew all these characters that were being included in every book. So when so when Anthro showed up, we were, oh, Anthro! And when Warlord showed up, oh, look at Warlord! You know, like, we all know these characters. So it, it meant a lot more to us. I still have that and, experience um, reading it now as an adult. Absolutely. But I'm I... saying, like, when, when, when you're seeing everybody you ever knew and then it's not set whether they're going to survive or what's going to happen to them. They had an urgency to it. Well, I have to say, at the time before. it was coming out, I was looking forward to every issue. I couldn't wait for the new issue to come out. Yeah, that's what but I'm saying. It's a different experience when you... When but the longer it went, the more dissatisfied I got with it. And I feel that excitement looking at it, but part of the problem is Wolfman isn't writing the characters that I know. So, like, for example, when Batman shows up fighting the Joker... I mean, I love the Mensch run. He's riffing off of Engelhardt from years earlier. It, <laughs> it, 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 you know, all, they, they build on the history. So the, the, the point being just... The specialness of it is that you're seeing all the characters show up. You go, oh, look, Earth 2 Robin, you know. For instance, his dialogue for Northwind was all wrong. It, yeah. it didn't capture <laughs> yeah, that okay. character at all. He was a newer character. Some of the other characters I didn't know very well, so I don't know how well he captured them. But I suspect that was true of a lot of them. I love what he did with Anthrum. Yep. I thought that was a lot of fun. Oh, the anthro scenes I mean, were great. Yeah. Absolutely. There were a lot, I like seeing Commandy. You know, there was a lot of kind of nice things that you were like, wow, look at this. Look, wow, look at this, you know. So the concept, it's, I mean, the idea of bringing everybody together and having that moment, that's fun. The execution could have been done a lot better. But yeah. Oh, well. Know. All right. So uh, do we want to talk more about what was good about the series beyond the anticipation of waiting um, from month to month? What did we like about Crisis? Well, I love the art. Yes. There's never any question about that, especially after Jerry Ordway came aboard as Inker. Amen to that. that it really just, took off when Jerry I would, I would sell a body part to own a page from that. I, you know, specifically <laughs> the, uh, the, the page where they have everybody gathered in the monitor satellite. I would love to have a blown up poster of that. Oh, no kidding. Of course, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at the, uh, the big crisis poster that Perez and Alex Ross did for the cover of uh, the trade paperback. Mm -hmm. I've got a huge poster uh, over my desk. Oh, wow. That's and, awesome. And yet I can actually say 
but I still can't identify every character in the poster. Wow. But I even bet there's all, a lot of fans out even there. Even as familiar can. as I am with all of the DC comics. Would you put it past Ross to have thrown a couple people who are just his friends in silly costumes in there to see if anybody catches <laughs> it? No, I think they're all I think they're all legit because I've got the key to it. They're all legitimate characters. Okay. Jeff, I think you're too cynical, Jeff. You're too cynical. No, Come I'm, on. No, I'm saying I think Ross likes to have <laughs> Ross does like to have fun putting real people into comic books. That's the thing he does. If it were Terry Austin, I'd expect to see Popeye in there somewhere. <laughs> or at least Captain Strong. <laughs> you know, Cap Captain Strong should have appeared in Crisis. Uh, that's another guy in this. I agree with you 100%. He should have. And if I'd have written Crisis, he would have. <laughs> do you guys know anything about Peter Sanderson, um, the historian they hired to do all the research for this? I know he, he went to Marvel after. That he was a, at the time he first started being a letter hack, he was a student at Columbia and became acquainted with a lot of the pros in New York. Oh. And eventually ended up working as an intern at DC and had access to their library and was able to read virtually every comic they'd ever published. Which is the most insane job that I can't decide if that would be heaven or hell. Peter Sanderson was DC's Mark Grunwald. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he worked for Marvel as well. Well, he left. Yeah, he left for Marvel right before Crisis happened, right? And they may not have needed him if, if Nelson Bridwell hadn't died before Crisis. Right. Hmm. Because he was the absolute, he was a walking encyclopedia of DC continuity. And speaking of walking encyclopedia, you bring us to the first signs, I think, of the giant mess that was the post-crisis continuity, which was DC's decision to publish Who's Who in the DC Universe one month before crisis began. Yep. What a weird idea. If you want to, so if you're looking for a clear sign of lack of leadership, let's create an encyclopedia that gives you every bit of information about the DC universe right before we reset it completely so that it's running and being published in the middle of that. Yep. I would have done the who's who first and then crisis. So here's the, here's the quote from Marv Wolfman, the telltale quote about what was supposed to happen after crisis. And then we'll get into what the heck went wrong. Uh, Wolfman writes, and then in January of 1986, we were supposed to start every book new with a new number one. I fought for that for so long. And Dick Giordano, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, in his autobiography said that the only mistake he made was not doing that. And he said the only reason he didn't do it was he didn't think we had enough good talent to actually recreate every book from scratch. Ha! Oh, wow. I'm not sure, I'm not sure he's wrong. <laughs> but, but why do every book? Why don't you release eight this week, this month? The next month, another eight. I mean, why does well, everything have to be? That's the other thing is, time. I think they were overextended. I, do you really need three Superman books, three Batman books? Why not focus on one good title and use that precious printing space for other characters? It wasn't like they were making big time sales. Because people always flock towards what's safe. Right. So beginning in our... October 85, you see the first attempt to relaunch the line. You've got the Flash 350, um, where it didn't actually necessarily indicate that the crisis was coming next, but there's some foreshadowing that there will be a crisis. Secret Origins number one launches in January 1986 to sort of try and, I guess, be the who's who for the post-crisis. Uh, New Teen Titans number 19 is when Wally West shows up as the Flash. Uh, the next issue, um, Dove and Tula are mourned. Um, and then... Wonder Woman is presumed dead in February 86, and her comic is replaced by Legend of Wonder Woman number one. 
And then in Batman 392, something really freaking weird happens. Um, this is where Doug Mensch attempts to reboot Batman on his own. Without, yes. It's the weirdest thing ever. It begins by saying the crisis is over and then gives Batman's origin story for the first time in years and then refers to Jason Todd as being well on his way to becoming Robin and changes all the characterizations around. Um, suddenly, Len Wein is not providing, sorry, Len Wein is not providing any footnotes about any past events whatsoever when he always did before. And it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> After a few issues, Mensch goes back to the old thing. But then um, the same month, Aquaman number one launches, Blue Beetle number one launches, Infinity Inc. number 25 is next month where they're mourning all the heroes who died. And then Hawkman number one is a little bit late to the show in May of 1986. What I'm trying to show is there was an att initial haphazard attempt to relaunch that didn't quite take. Um, it was quite clumsy. Yeah, it was super clumsy. But this was like, you can see various editors trying to play ball and just failing at it. Um, oh, the, the, the Superman titles were horrendous during that last year before the reboot. You can see there were the Superman titles just re releasing like uh, 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 books that were already done, like inventory stories. They were marking time and they were written by somebody who I've never seen write comics before or since. Who's that? I can't remember his name. I, I thought I thought Cooperberg was doing a lot of them. No, he was writing Supergirl, which was a really good book. Yeah, I can honestly say I've never read um, Superman of that era, so I couldn't tell you. They're they're bad. They're really <laughs> bad. They're, for one thing, they're all done in ones, and they're all written for a very young audience, and they're all complete wastes of time because they don't send the characters anywhere. Wow. So, I mean, we even touched upon the fact that some comics, like, showed red skies one month, but then didn't deal with the fact there were dinosaurs walking down Main Street the next month after that. Right. Craziness. Right. Um, but what's interesting is, and I didn't know this until I did the research for this episode, was in May 1986, you see two different comics attempt to explain away the delay in resetting everything. And that's um, Legend of Wonder Woman number four and All-Star Squadron number 60. Legend of Wonder Woman number four um, reveals that Aphrodite had apparently been preventing the reality from rebooting after Crisis, but then she finally decides to allow it at the end of the issue. Apparently, Aphrodite by herself had been holding back reality from changing all this time and then finally lets it go. And at the same time in All-Star Squadron number 60, um, Robotic Mechanic, I don't even know who that character is, was also... Robot character from Fritz Lang's Metropolis. No way! Yeah. Yeah, they wrote her into the series. So then she was apparently also single-handedly preventing the change. I don't know how a robot does that. But at the same time, and not related to each other, both decide to give up and let the change happen. And so May 1986 is supposed to be the definitive post-crisis reboot. Of course, there's still complications after that, but that was the intention. Well, Man of Steel number one, in my mind, is the very first time they addressed there's a new reality and everything else before it never happened. And that's my problem with what happened, the mess, as you put it, after the crisis, is that, again, it would have been better if they'd started everybody with a number one because you have to try to explain silly things. Why Barry Allen sacrifices life, but nobody knows what he's sacrificing for. Yes. It, or Because they, at the end of issue 12 of the crisis, they they went back to the beginning of time, the end of time or whatever it was, beginning of time, and everything is is set in a different universe, a different reality. So that means the other things never occurred ever. Right. 
There was never another Superman. There was never another Flash. They, they didn't exist. Eventually, even those people who went back in time had their memories rewritten. Infinity yeah. Inc. number 30 is the last time the Earth 2 characters are aware they came from Earth 2. Yeah. And then you have um in Superman, I think it's number, I don't remember what issue it is. In the post-crisis Superman, um, at one point, he acknowledges the fact there'd been a crisis and that Laurie Lamaris died in it. And then that makes you wonder what parts of crisis does he remember, what parts doesn't he remember? Yeah, he remembers Laurie Lamaris dying, but he doesn't remember Supergirl dying because she never existed. Right. Again, none of it should have been ever a thing. It should have just been, this is where we are now. Superman just came to Earth. Batman just has parents killed. And this is where we're starting from. Forget Flash. Forget Wonder Woman, the Golden Age Wonder Woman going to Olympus and becoming one of the gods, which is a so inane part of <laughs> issue 12. I mean, there was a lot of silly things that, to me, I'm like, well, nobody remembers it because it never occurred. You're starting over. Even the gods were rebooted. They, they decided post-crisis that the Greek gods and the Roman gods were two separate pantheons. Right. That was what, such a shame. what the War of the Gods mini was all about. It's Don't such a shame that DC... <laughs> Why did you have to mention that? No, because, <laughs> you know, because that was it... one of the consequences of Crisis was that every year there had to be a company-wide crossover. Right. It didn't have to suck, though. So but I'm most... say this. All right, and so... Then... Sorry, go ahead, Kurt. Oh, no, that's, go ahead. I was going to say uh, the second wave, what happens after Man of Steel number one. You've got um, Legends number one is largely post-crisis, although it acknowledges the Justice League Detroit team, which makes it sort of weird. And then you've got Batman number 404 is technically his post-crisis origin, except that um, year one was not originally intended to be in continuity at all. And then yeah. right after that, in Batman 408, they also reset the continuity again. Um, you've got Legends number six sets up all the new post-crisis titles. But again, you've still got that connection back to Justice League Detroit. In fact, even into the Justice League new title, Martian Manhunter still remembers the Detroit League and talks about them. Right. And, and that, well, and that, stayed, that stayed constant throughout. Yeah. But I don't understand. Why Why is the Detroit team a problem? Well, only it's because... part of the Justice League run. Because the Detroit team knew the other Wonder Woman and the, the other, you know, Flash. And they were part of this pre-crisis continuity. But their memories could be reset, too. Well, like... Well, but like uh, Kurt said earlier, so they just don't mention them again. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a thing. It could just be, oh, yeah, no, they, we never met them. So then you, you get your onslaught of number one titles again. You've got Wonder Woman number one in February, The Question number one in February, um, Batman's Reset in March, um, Shazam the New Beginning number one in April, Suicide Squad number one in May, and Flash number one in June. So in the end, Marvel's efforts to meticulously reset an entire universe ends up taking a year and a half and two different concerted efforts to reboot an entire company, after which things are still considerably messy and the fans are left extremely confused. In terms of explanation as to what went wrong, why in the world this happened, the answer can actually be found inside Crisis on Infinite Earths itself. In Crisis on Infinite Earths number three, um, in his write-up before there was a letter column, Marv Wolfman, you can tell, already knows the ball's about to be dropped. And he provides his explanation, and he tries to sell it as a positive. Um, here's the quote he gives. He says, We knew when the crisis would be ending and how long the actual story took. So our other writers and editors had to take that information and make their own decisions on how and when they'd participate. DC is not a company where one editor reigns supreme. We have slightly more than a half dozen editors who work pretty much independently, with one eye on their titles and the other eye on the rest of the line. 
So there is no house style at DC. No form imposed on everyone. No method. Yeah. If you want to show red skies, show red skies. Good luck. <laughs> but you know, he had a lot of resistance from all the editors and all the writers. Sure. They didn't, they didn't want to buy into it. And it showed. So are you ready for my tinfoil hat theory, guys? Tinfoil hat theories. <laughs> all right. You know, and honestly, the more I've looked into this, the more... I, I, I... I even got the tinfoil. Yes! <laughs> I, we need that picture. I'm so excited about that. Tinfoil hat theories. <laughs> tinfoil hat theories. <laughs> all right, so... <laughs> I got a feeling it's going to appear on the podcast in, in a... In YouTube, but go ahead. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, my theory, uh, basically, the common consensus, I believe, of, of what went wrong is essentially that um, because we had Paul Levitz running things and he was, you know, a nice guy and not taking bold risks, that he didn't um, push the vision hard enough and as a result, things sort of went the way they did. Um, I would begin by arguing that I think that Jeanette Kahn was neither that stupid nor that likely to sit back and let something she was really passionate about in 1981 and 1982 fall by the wayside. Um, in Wolfman's write-up about what happened, he constantly emphasizes how strongly Kahn was embracing this in 81 and 82. So what happened between 81 and 82 where she was willing to fight for it and cared about it tremendously in 1985 where suddenly it can just fall apart and not be a big deal. And in fact, even in DC's uh, Meanwhile page, it isn't even mentioned for most of the 12 issues of Crisis, which is crazy. And I think it comes down to secret wars. Um, so let me start with this quote that blew my mind when I found it, because this is uh, spinning back to last episode. So, Oh, the secret wars? Not that part of it. We'll go there in a second. But so last... I mean, that's a boomerang, but go oh, ahead. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm, my <laughs> mind is everywhere with tinfoil possibilities. So I managed to, uh, to to find this quote in the write-up that Wolfman did in Christ on Infinite Earths number one, and I don't know how it escaped my notice before, because last episode of my tinfoil hat theory, I talked about a phrase that, to the best of my knowledge, nobody other than Doug Mensch had ever uttered or heard, which is the Jim Shooter theory of the Big Bang of the Marvel Universe. Right, George? Okay. I'm with you. So... Here's a quote directly from Wolfman in Christ on Infinite Earths number one on that inside cover. For the past several years, many people have suggested fixing up the DC Universe, simplifying it, making it consistent. I remember Jerry Conway talking about his Big Bang Theory several years ago. Other writers and artists have often mentioned how they wish the morass of continuity would be repaired. So I'm not sure what to make of that, whether, in fact, Shooter took the idea from Conway or if Wolfman is misremembering whose idea it was. But Kurt made the point earlier on that Crisis was DC trying to write like Marvel. And I think here's our smoking gun proof that they absolutely were trying not just to write like Marvel, but they were trying to do what Shooter was trying to pull off at Marvel and wasn't able to. That complete reset and rebirth that he was trying to do through um, rebranding the characters for the 25th anniversary covers, maybe, and through the new universe as well. But here's the thing. George, you pointed out the fact that in 1984, Secret Wars, it's around that point that Shooter stops having the trust and confidence of many people he's working with. That's when things start to turn sour and a lot of people start bad-mouthing him and he sort of becomes a pariah. I think what happened was they took too long to make Crisis. 
I think they wanted this to be very much in the style of Jim Shooter, whose vision was selling like gangbusters over at Marvel. And then by the time they were ready to go to print, suddenly you had these people coming into DC complaining about the overreach of Jim Shooter and how editors shouldn't be able to take the level of control he was taking. And I think at that point, you had everyone realizing if you push this too hard, they're going to have a rebellion. And, and those that, were the very people that, that ended up resisting crisis. Roy exactly. Lamb Ween, Jerry Conway. Exactly. And I think that's why Khan sort of backs off and takes a safe distance from it. And Wolfman has to decide for himself, how hard do I want to fight for this thing and make enemies the rest of my career? And as a result, people just sort of do what they want to do when it mostly fizzles. So your, your theory is what? That they bent over backwards not to be Jim Shooter? My theory is originally they were trying very hard to be Jim Shooter and then hit the brakes in reverse really, really hard right before Crisis went to press. Wow. I, you, I you can't know, say it doesn't make sense. Wow. Well, it, it's a theory. <laughs> I, say that. I was waiting it, for that. It's a theory. I'll say this. You know, you, you said something about Paul Levitz. And I think, I believe in the first, the first uh, podcast we had, I said something about Paul Levitz, and, and it didn't make the final cut. But I'm yeah, the whole. I, in fact, I was hoping you'd say it again. The whole thing well, about when um, the Image Crew went to DC. Please talk well, about I'm, that. I'm going to talk about Paul Levitz in general. This is from what I've read from various creators that he's not a guy that takes risks at all. He plays it safe all the time. He is. He has been known to say, "We like being second place to Marvel because that way no one looks at us and no one expects much." So we're happy just to be second best. And, and that philosophy carried on in all of his endeavors and, all, and in his managing style. Rob Liefeld, in one of his podcasts, mentions that three, three of the Image creators went to DC right before Image started because they wanted to leave Marvel. The three, I think it was Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Tom McFarlane, to take over three books. But they wanted a guarantee that they would get so much money per book because they're leaving a, a, a company in Marvel where they're making million dollar checks from the books they're already doing. They're saying, if we're going to make the jump, we want you, you to, uh, to assure us each book, we're going to get $100,000 from each book. And Paul Levis didn't want to do it. Now, that was a big turning point because when they were turned down, they went and went full force on image and, you know, the rest is history. Well, let's keep in mind, though, that Paul Levitz is a, has an MBA, and he's one of the few people in comics who actually has business experience, genuine business experience. And he may have seen that there was no way they would break even if they did that. That I there may have been he... good, solid business reasons why he couldn't give them what well, they wanted. These guys are routinely selling 500,000 to a million copies of their books. We're talking about Jim Lee, McFarlane, and, and Rob Liefeld at the peak of their powers. What I understand is Liefeld wanted to take over New Teen Titans and Jim Lee and McFarlane wanted to do Batman titles. You don't think that those titles would have sold like gangbusters? It sounds like Levis didn't want to pull the trigger and he was kind of a chicken. So you know, he let them walk away. I think you're absolutely right. And I think this comes down to a question that comes up a lot when we discuss comic book history and what happened behind the scenes, which is sometimes a decision that was bad creatively was actually a good decision in terms of business. And I don't mean for DC in general. I mean, look at how long Paul Levitz held on to that position. He stayed in that position far longer than most of his contemporaries ever did by playing it safe and having a very comfy career. And I'm sure looking out for the people and things he really cared about. But by not being the risky guy who is willing to, you know, chance at all. I mean, look where Shooter ended up and look where Levitz ended up. 
Well, and Levitz had to be very careful because Warners was looking for any excuse to shut DC down. Oh, I didn't know about that part, Kurt. Yeah, Warners, Warners mm. wanted to hang on to DC for the IP, but they weren't terribly interested. And in, at one point, they actually were talking to Disney about them taking over the comic book line. <laughs> Which, ironically, <laughs> Disney's doing with Marvel right now. That's so interesting. Right. Licensing their characters to Disney, because at the time, Disney was publishing their Well, you know, no, no risk and no reward. What can you say? But like you said, the guy liked to play it safe. For the company, no. For the individual, yes. Playing it safe had gotten DC by for decades and was only now starting not to work. I, I, you know what? I submit to you, it never worked. They, they, they were treading water, but they, they never challenged Marvel at all. And that's a failure on the, on the head guy. And he didn't take chances. But that may have been Look, why he was put in that position, why he was made publisher, was because they knew he wouldn't take chances. That's a good point. And there were chances yeah. taken. Look at the look at the uh, look at the uh, Piranha Press line and the Vertigo line. That's where they took their chances. What's interesting is ultimately we're left with a big irony um, between looking at what we covered last episode and this one, which is you've got Shooter and Wolfman stuck at the wrong companies. <laughs> if Shooter, had, I mean, really, if Shooter had been overseeing, really, really yeah, but Wolfman right. wasn't in charge of anything. He was just a writer. Although, I mean, he was influential, but. But what Wolfman really wanted was Wolfman wanted Marvel-style continuity, which was already in place at Marvel and didn't need to be fixed. Okay, I see what you're saying. He also wanted to be his own editor. That's why he wasn't at Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> and they treated Wolfman pretty shabbily towards the end, too. Yeah. I mean, even after he left, they took cheap shots at him, like the uh, the story in Howard the Duck where his Harold Harold character was a Mary Sue for, for Wolfman was right. just treated horribly. Well, I mean, and, you know, they dumped all over Spider Woman. They dumped all over Nova. They basically, they basically fell over all of his characters as soon as he left in what I thought was a really petty, spiteful manner. That seems to happen more often than not. I mean, didn't Tim Shooter, uh, didn't did John Byrne create a doppelganger for Jim Shooter and kill him in the Legends miniseries? Mm -hmm. But that's what yeah, happens I mean, when you have emotionally arrested man boys running your company. <laughs> and running your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Long-term consequences on the industry. George, start us off. What difference do you think Crisis made to all that followed? Well, it didn't make a difference to DC because they went back on it quite quickly. Uh, Legends was a follow-up. They were okay there. When Zero Hour came along, they tried to eliminate some mistakes and set, reset the timeline. And then after that, Infinite Crisis, which is a more direct equal to Crisis of Infinite Earths, went back on the whole concept and made Superman of Earth 2 like a villain, Alexander Luthor a villain. And, and, and it just kind of betrayed everything that was nice about the ending of Crisis of Infinite Earth. So, I mean, but, you know, again, it's just a problem with corporate-owned characters and, and heroes. You know, you have a person that has no tie, no real stake in it, or even more to true life, Flash becomes resurrected like 25 years later, the actual Barry Allen Flash. Kurt, your thoughts, final long-term consequences of crisis on the industry? I think it was negative in that suddenly you had this, this mandatory yearly company-wide crossover that had to have big consequences, which meant, you know, changes in powers, replacing one character with a new version, deaths, good characters turning bad, 
and then, you know, a year later undoing it all and forcing the creative staffs of any given single title to interrupt what they were doing and wedge this story into their storyline, regardless of whether it fit the tone of what they were trying to accomplish or not. All in the name, basically, I'll sum it up, in, I'll sum it up as briefly as I can. The shared universe became more important than its component, individual components. Mm -hmm. And that was true at both DC and Marvel. And I think that was the downfall of the superhero comic. Interesting. Wow. Uh, two of our Patreons actually asked us to do an, a podcast episode about the history of the uh, the event comic. And um, I promised I might try and work it into here because I think it's quite relevant. That it is, I, absolutely. In, in a way, I think there's, there's sort of um, a continuity that has been in place since at least the 1950s that Crisis is only a blip as a piece of, which is... Um, you know, when you first have Superman and Batman cross over um, in Superman and then in World's Finest, and then you have the JLA and the JSA meet, there was a hunger from fans all along for their characters to meet and interact. And yes. that, it kept getting bigger and bigger and getting more positive feedback from the fans and garnishing more, garnishing, garnering more attention as well. And the reason, the, one of the reasons that it became more possible at DC, because of course DC, you had these different editorial fiefdoms and they weren't interested in cooperating with each other. They didn't care what was happening in each other's books. But then they saw what was happening at Marvel, where Stan had control over all of the books right. and could work them fairly seamlessly into each other. Right. And and spreading it even outside the genre. You know, he could have Reed Richards pop up in Sergeant Fury. Right. And you, you see sort of a testing of the waters of this earlier on, where like um, Contest of Champions at Marvel had no real ramifications for any individual title. But it threw all the heroes together and got attention. And then at DC, they did um, Superpowers, which, as far as I know, is not in continuity with anybody. But it was an event that brought all the heroes together. It, it did well enough. I mean, that's that, the, I like that series, actually. And I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. I'm not sure if that's the first actual crossover. But, I mean, wasn't, wasn't there like Justice League, Justice Society back in the 60s? Right. Is well, it was the first, it was the first standalone crossover. And, and mm. publish as its own book. Right. Yeah. And so then that, you've got super, that was fun. Yeah, you got superpowers follows that. Obviously, Secret Wars. And by that point, Secret Wars is selling, you know, huge. And that's when Jimmy Shooter proves you can make people fall in line and work into the book and tie into it. So I, I think this was inevitability, whether crisis has been made or not. And regardless of how it would been made, I think the event, the annual event was coming one way or the other. Yeah, right. If it hadn't been Crisis, well, actually, it was a co the combination of Crisis and Secret Wars. Right. Both companies saw that the crossover event. It was so a moneymaker. Right. But I think what Crisis did differently, I, I think Crisis's enduring legacy for positive and negative, probably most likely negative, that it added was the reset, which didn't come from Marv Wolfman. That came from Jerry Conway or Jim Shooter or whoever. But the whole idea of wiping the slate clean and starting over again as a way to reinvigorate your brand is never going to go away now because it always works. And we might never have had that if crisis has never been made. True. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, any final thoughts on crisis or on anything on tinfoil hat theories on, I don't know, before we wrap up today? I'll tell you what, I give it a B. The crisis in general? As, yeah, the whole, the whole ministry. For, for, for story, George, or for the whole shebang of what it did for the industry and everything, all Everything. For, for the story, the art, what it did, everything. I mean, it was important. But the story itself, 
aside from from the gratuitous fighting every other panel, I yeah. give it a B. It was a, it was a solid story. The only thing is that it does suffer from you had to be there because it was more it was it, this time around when I read it, it was a bit of a slog. But the first time I read it, it was like this is unbelievable. Every month, every month was like boom, boom, boom. I just couldn't believe what was happening. So it was it, you had to be there, I guess. Sure. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that because I know I was very excited about it as it was coming out. Kurt, you finally you're finally on my team. <laughs> finally, finally, you've come to your senses and you agree with me. Well, I'm, I'm very happy. Point. I mean, I would give it a B because the A of the art and the D of the story kind of even out that way. Mm. That's fair. Yeah, I don't know what to rate it because. I found it tedious to get through. I, I found, you know, as we talked about, the writing really, really challenging. But I also cannot imagine there are certain moments in comics that are, are so essential that comic, the comic genre, not even genre, the comic medium as a whole would be lacking without them. And I, I really couldn't imagine a comic book medium without the deaths of Supergirl and Flash. They were done so incredibly well. That that alone, I think, changes the grade for me quite a bit. So I, I think without those, it probably would have been like a D plus for me. I, I think I'd probably, yeah, I might go B minus. Let me ask you something, though. Would the deaths of Supergirl and The Flash have happened if if Claremont and Byrne hadn't killed Jean Grey? Ooh, so this is all going to become Shooter's fault, isn't it? <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> We're right back to that man again. <laughs> I do want to say one thing about Crisis that I think was really detrimental, and that is that the Marvel family should never have brought into the, been brought into the mainstream DC universe. It destroyed those characters. Hmm. Because they, they lived in a world completely, tonally different. Kurt, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of the Shazam series or the Sam, Sam, Shazam universe. There were a lot of fans who agreed with you, and and it, it was and, it was quite silly. Did you ever read the 1950s ones, George? Yeah, I can't read them. Oh my! Oh my! I mean, if if you ex if you accept them for what they are, they're incredible. I mean, one of my favorite ones is Captain Marvel is manning an Arctic um, uh, research station by himself and dealing with the loneliness by playing poker cards with a seal. It's, um, it's you know so what? Just stupid, hearing the description amazing. of that, <laughs> just hearing the description of that is making my stomach hurt. Oh my! It is priceless for what it is, but it's it's not DC stuff. I agree. No, and and look at what happened when they when they initially tried after the crime. Have you guys read Shazam: The New Beginning by Roy Thomas and Tom Mandrake? No, no, I didn't. Terrible. <laughs> it is the worst thing Roy Thomas has ever written, and I've told him that to his face. <laughs> Why? He, he made it serious. And, what, and what was it? What was the he problem? made it? He, he did. He did a grim and gritty Captain Marvel. Oh no! Oh. I heard the Jerry Ordway one was good. Yeah, I was going to mention that. I've heard such good things. Of well, Jerry the Jerry Ordway one was one. The Jerry Ordway one was what brought me back into comics wow. Wow. after eight years away from it. Wow, he's he's a great artist. Mm. I don't think there's any way to save that character. He was dopey in the comics and he was dopey in the movies. That's my opinion. Sorry, guys. Well, you know, in 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 Kurt, I think you may have inadvertently given Crisis quite a compliment, which is. All these different things, were, which were supposed to exist in their own editorial serfdoms, which were supposed to survive in their own universes, which had their own tones, had their own genres, were combined together for 12 issues, and only one of those properties didn't fit. 
That's true. In fact, the the Charlton characters fit in remarkably well because two of the best books to come out of the post-crisis era were the uh, was Blue Beetle by Len Wein and Paris Cullen, and Captain Adam by Carrie Bates and Pat Broderick. And I'm not a Carrie Bates fan, so when I say I really enjoyed that book, that's saying something. All right, I'm gonna wrap up. I'm gonna wrap up the show with a really really terrible joke. You guys ready for this? Sure. So you know how like superheroes become so mainstream, they're everywhere these days? Of course. Yeah. Have you guys heard about Coetic Face Cream? Oh boy, I don't think I'm gonna like this. Yeah, Coetic Cream, it's amazing. Instead of just deep cleaning your pores, it erases them entirely. Oh, <laughs> That's it! I love it. Oh, you're so welcome. Guys, this you, was you... such a joy. I love this so much. Thank you for the good time today. Yikes. Yeah, this I'm, I'm still I'm still reeling from the Coletta joke. You know, <laughs> he saved more books than than anybody. He's my hero. <laughs> well, if you enjoyed today's episode, and even if you didn't, don't forget to add your thoughts to the conversation at classiccomics.org, where we have uh, individual conversations for each episode we do, where George and I are always excited to read your thoughts and respond. The CCF theme is written, performed, and produced by Paul King. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, Bill Sinclair, Marty Golia, and Michael Gallagher. You guys make the difference, and we appreciate you so much. A very special thank you to Scott Harris-King, creator and host of the original Classic Comics Forum podcast. CCF In-Depth is produced in partnership with the Classic Comics Forum. Visit us on the web at ClassicComics.org or find us on Facebook. Classic Comics. The Classic Comics Forum in Snappy Conversations With your host George and Jim Comics.org